This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm your host, Megan Gilmore, and I'm super excited to join you for the first episode of our second season. Our guest today, Heather Graham, has a lot of insight about what it means to adjust to a disability when that disability takes away some experiences that you really hold dear. Heather was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when she was in her 40s, but for the past few years, she's been teaching herself how to walk again. She's a great story about perseverance and hope, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Just a quick note, though. I understand that everybody's experience with disability, and in this case, MS, is pretty different. You may not get to experience everything that Heather has in the way that she has, but I think there's a lot we can learn from this conversation. I know I did, and I hope you really enjoy it. Heather, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to having you on this podcast since we started this last year. So I am thrilled to have you be our first guest of the second season. As like as people are listening to this, it's, it's September. People are heading back to school. And there's, you know, that typical question that we often like to ask kids, which is, what do you want to be when you grow up? When you were a child, how would you have answered that question? I would have loved to be a librarian. When I was a child, I books were the most amazing thing to me. And I spent a lot of time at the library. The world of of a library was so fascinating to me. So that was my goal, but that's not what actually happened. I also wanted to be a librarian when I was a kid. What ended up happening? Why did you end up not pursuing your very worthwhile dream of being a librarian? Well, actually, the year before I graduated from high school, my father passed away. And I think that really, I don't know, changed me or maybe had an effect on me that I just was conscious so of how hard my mom was working to support me. And I didn't want to be any more of a burden on her. So I just decided to go to work and never did go back to school. I think I was in my 40s when my mom found out the reason why I never became a librarian. And she was actually furious at me because She would not have been concerned about supporting me for another few years. But I guess that's how you think when you're 17 years old and don't have all that mature of a brain. And if I understand correctly, you made a pretty big move early on, right? I did. I was very influenced when I was in my teens by people that were old. And when I say old, I'm talking about people about 25 years old. And they would say, oh, I've never done anything with my life. I went to school, went to university, I got a job, I got married, then we started a family, and I've never done anything. So I was determined that was not going to be my story. And so the first thing I did, actually, was I traveled across Canada. And then I came back to Vancouver and worked for another year. And then I moved to Calgary. Why Calgary? I don't really know. But I think for one thing, my dad really loved this city. And maybe it was thinking of him. My grandmother and my aunt also lived outside of Calgary in a little town called Sundry, which is an hour away. Maybe that was some of it. We were on this podcast, it's it's called Connecting Disability. So people might be wondering, uh, as they're listening to this conversation, when does disability begin to enter your life? 
when I was 46. So my life, I had a very good life, I think. I traveled lots. I did a lot of things. I used to go south of the city in an area and, and ride when they were moving the cattle up into the hills or when they were bringing them back down in the fall. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. So I had a very good life at 46. So it did change because I was diagnosed with MS or multiple cirrhosis. And what was that diagnosis journey like for you? Like how long does it actually take for somebody to get an MS diagnosis? Mine was very quick. I thought I had an ear infection and I had gone to a clinic and the doctor looked in my ear and he said, oh, yes, you have an ear infection. And he prescribed something to me. The next night at supper, I had this strange sensation go down my left arm and it was so subtle and it was so quick. And you wondered if something really happened. But yet I knew something had happened. So I said to my mom, she was at the sink and I said, how would you feel if you were having a stroke? And she said to me, well, I don't know, but why would you even ask? So I told her, and our first thoughts were that maybe I was having a reaction to this drug. So we looked at the paperwork and there was nothing that said it was a reaction to the drug. But it did say if you feel anything to come into the clinic or come into an urgent care. So I did. That clinic was closed, so we went to a different clinic. And he assessed me, and at the time he said to me, well, you have symptoms of different things, but nothing really follows through. He said, why would you think, though, that you had an ear infection? Because your ears are perfectly clear. Hmm. So at the time, we were working a huge amount of hours at work. And I said, well, could my body just be saying back off? And he said, that's as good as diagnosis I could give. The next day, though, when I went to work, I couldn't type. I couldn't move my fingers. And that's when I really became concerned. And one of my co-workers took me to a hospital. And the doctor there was the first one that mentioned MS. So when I did go to see a neurologist, he did a scan to prove that I didn't have a stroke. And then they did an MRI and then they came through with the diagnosis. So it was actually for me very quick. Wow. And just going back to that original story, um, so your mother had moved from Vancouver to, to be with you in Calgary at this time. She had come to Calgary actually some years earlier. She probably, that was maybe 20 or more years earlier. By that time, her mom and sister had moved in from Sundry into Calgary and her mother had just passed away. And so her sister here really could do with someone to help her. And then, of course, I was here. You find out that you're diagnosed with MS. What happens next? What happens next is... I guess I'm going to say two different things. The neurologist sends you to the MS clinic. I went to the MS clinic and I actually freaked out there because for one thing, you know, they're wanting to give you different drugs. I'm absolutely terrified of needles, so I don't want them. Also, multiple cirrhosis is multiple. In other words, what that means is if you've had an attack, they really can't correctly diagnose you with multiple cirrhosis until you've had two attacks. And so I became determined I was not going to have the second attack. So I left the MS clinic and I went to a local vitamin store and I asked them, what can I do? What can I take that I'll never have another attack? 
So I'm going to say there's the neurologist way of treating MS, and there was my way. And one of the things that happened when I went to that vitamin store was he gave me a little booklet from an organization that's here in Calgary called MS Direct. And they are very big on diet and some of the things that they definitely, and I think all MS diets are similar on this, that to take out gluten and dairy. So I started following this diet and I was doing well, actually. My biggest problem with it was that I would come home from work and I was so tired that I would just not follow the diet. I just eat something simple, grab the simplest thing. And eventually I just kind of fell off it. I can probably tell you that's my biggest regret today. You mentioned that MS, it's multiple. It's also, it's a disease that people live with. People can live very long lives with MS. So how did it progress for you? First, it was my hands. And then the following year, it affected my feet. But that was in sensation. So it didn't affect my feet as far as, well, I shouldn't say it. It definitely affected as far as walking, but not to much degree. So I could walk with a walker. I actually got myself walking well enough that I didn't need the walker. So I could just walk ordinary again, eventually got again. So I needed the walker. And that went on for, you know, I don't want to even mention years because I can't say for sure, but it went on for a few years that way. And then I was rear-ended. And that seemed to really affect my walking where it got worse and worse and worse and was not recovery at all. I then went to Costa Rica for what was at the time in those years, a treatment that was being recommended or CCSVI. It was recommended or it came out of Italy, you know, that this was something that would be very helpful to people. It was not being done in Canada. So I went to Costa Rica. When I came back from there, I had a very severe UTI, which eventually developed into a kidney infection. And then from the kidney infection, I ended up in the hospital. I actually was taken in in an ambulance. After that, I was having a really difficult time walking. I went sent to another center to rehabilitate. And at that center, I got so I could maybe walk, I don't know, a few yards, maybe 50 yards, and then I would need my wheelchair again. At that point, I more or less became wheelchair bound. And where did you move from the rehabilitation center? Like where where are we, where are you calling in from today? So from the rehabilitation center, first of all, what they did is they went to my house and they told me how I needed to renovate it to go home. So then they sent me to a nursing home in order to be somewhere while completed these renovations. Now, this was what I call a a real nursing home where the people are elderly. You only shared a room, so you didn't have very much space. And I was there for 18 months while I was renovating my house, with getting everything ready, getting your hospital bed in there. I bought a sit-to-stand lift so that they could use that with me. And from the nursing home, they would send me home periodically and see if everything was working right. And if I came in with any problems, you know, I'd go back to the nursing home while we could fix that. I also hired somebody that would be in the home. So she would be there for my mom and myself. 
So when everything got ready and I could actually move home, my family doctor said, I won't prescribe your medication for you. And that was just a big blow to me. It was like, there's nothing I can do. Of course, now I realized that maybe there were some things I could do. As someone else said to me, I could have simply gone to a different doctor and seen if they would have prescribed the medication and gone home. Anyways, I didn't. And I ended up being moved to a different place. This is called long-term care. The first two floors in the building are for people that are 64 years and younger. And the third floor is for people that are probably more the nursing home category. And then the fourth floor is lockdown dementia in this building. So it is a lot different atmosphere. You know, you're with people of your own age. There are a few people that are very, very sick here on this floor. There's a few people that have a form of dementia, or maybe, for example, there's somebody that had brain damage from vehicle accidents, things like that. Also, we do have our own rooms. They're about 250 square feet. I feel like I've managed to use every ounce of that 250 square feet. So you are calling today from a long-term care facility in Calgary. And to be clear for the audience, just with the timeline, like you moved in there when you were not 65. You were um, not a senior. No, I wasn't. I was probably 54. Like I've been here nine and a half years. For the past few years, especially with COVID-19, people have been discussing more the state of long-term care in this country. That's actually how you and I both connected a few years ago. I was just wondering, can you explain what your day-to-day life is like? What's like a typical day or week like in your life? Are we maybe discussing on an ordinary basis or during COVID? Let's start with an ordinary basis and then talk about how COVID changed things. On an ordinary basis, I'm going to say my life is my life. I am free to go out, especially in the summer. I spend an extreme amount of time in parks or outdoors at the zoo. There's a heritage park in Calgary that I've spent a a huge amount of time. One of the things I enjoy doing is photography. So I've worked it very hard being able to manage to take pictures. Really, my life is ordinary. Only difference is I'm in a wheelchair. I'm going to say one of the highest compliments I feel like a friend ever gave me was to say to me that I'd made a whole new life for myself in the wheelchair. I can travel if I want to. I go back to Vancouver on a trip. I was planning a cruise prior to the pandemic. It, of course, got canceled because of the pandemic. So really, I feel like my life is ordinary. Now, as ordinary as it can be. So, for example... Obviously, I'm not cooking food that I want. And I have, again, tried to get back a little bit to eating as they do. No gluten, no dairy. But really, the food here, it's not a gluten-free facility. The biggest problem, I'm going to say, is the food. And probably the biggest, how would I say it, the biggest reason that it's not your real home. And then the pandemic happened. And I I know there's been different waves and changes throughout the past few years. But what are some of the main ways that the pandemic has impacted your life that stayed consistent? When the pandemic first started, we were basically, I'm going to say, tied down. 
We had to stay in our rooms. I wasn't even supposed to go to the dining room to eat. I had to eat in my room. So you really couldn't even be socialized, maybe with the people on your floor. But for example, one of the big things for me here is physio. There was no physio. There is a cafeteria down in the first floor. It was closed. I spent an entire summer looking out my window at people walking up and down the street, children playing, dogs running around and everything. And it's like, I can't have any of that. I am very good at entertaining myself. One of the things I did is I've often read books on an e-reader. I listened to them on audio tape. So I made it one of my goals that I would read books in hardcover. And one of the reasons is because it's a very difficult thing for me to do. Because when you start reading a book, it's heavy on your right hand side and light on the left hand side. And then as you move through the book, it kind of evens out and there's equal pages on both sides of the cover and it's easy to hold on to. But then as you read through it, you're getting them heavier on the left-hand side and lighter on the right-hand side. So it was a real exercise for my hands to be able to hold a hardcover book and read it. I also have worked for the two years prior to the pandemic with some of the other residents here on writing a book. So that was another thing, certainly, that myself and one other lady could do. The person that had been involved in writing it, she was on the first floor, so she had limited access to our floor. She's here when she can be. So those were some of the things I did to keep myself entertained. That is a small amount of activity to fill up a very long day. As the pandemic was kind of, I guess, even in periodically, we you know, were able to get out to a doctor's appointment, and then the doors were closed again. We couldn't do that. And then the doors would open up and maybe we could get out for a couple of months and then the doors would close again. So that became very, very hard to handle. You could start doing some things. Nope, now you can't. Physio did get more involved with this. They had a physiotherapist or a physio assistant on each floor so that you could start doing some exercises. Also during that pandemic period, I had joined an online MS gym so that I could manage to do some physio on my own. That's basically how we got through it. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and why I wanted you to describe your life for us during the pandemic is in earlier episodes of this podcast, I've asked a lot of people, like I'll ask you, what are some places that are challenging with your disability? What does it mean to have a meaningful connection with somebody in the middle of those challenges? And I heard so many stories, Heather, about how hard the pandemic was and how isolated people felt during that time. And I would often think about you because I know that while well, you were in a situation that is incredibly isolated and incredibly regulated beyond your control. You don't make the visitor guidelines. You are also doing a lot of things. And one of the things that you've been working on for several years, even before the pandemic started, was reteaching yourself to walk. First, when was the last time you walked? The last time I walked, I'm going to say probably 12 years ago. When I moved from that first rehab facility I was at, and they moved me to a nursing home. In the nursing home, and this is one way I'm going to say it is a nursing home, they didn't allow me to try walking. So in their physio, if you have problems, you can't do it. And that's another thing people don't understand about multiple cirrhosis. If you can't do something, say I stand up 
and I try to take a step and I can't really do it. Or maybe I get two steps and then I kind of stumble. Let me sit down for two minutes and I bet I can walk fine. But the thing was, if you walked and you kind of stumbled, that's it. You don't walk again. For me to say I couldn't even try to walk made it that much harder again when I was trying to walk. Now, in this long-term care facility, I did have a physiotherapist. I've had two or three, actually, that have been eager to help me walk. For a long time, it was just at the bars that they have in a physio gym. I would just be walking in there or maybe even just doing sit-to-stance. And that went on for, again, I couldn't exactly say how many years, but I'm going to take a rough guess at anywhere from three to five years. And it was last year, November, 25th, actually, November 25th, that I walked outside of the bars for the first time with a walker. And the reason I know that it was November 25th is my goal had been that on December 25th, I was going to walk into the dining room. And so I actually exceeded my goal by a month. What has it meant to you to be able to regain part of your mobility? It's meant a huge amount. After I gained my mobility, I also gained a lot more. For example, I now wash myself. I now dress myself. I can stand at the weigh scale. I can go to a public washroom. So all these things added up to me gaining a lot more independence and a lot more probably self-esteem in the sense that you're proud of what you can accomplish and what you can do and to keep trying new things. A week from now, I've been invited to a friend's place for lunch. And when she phoned me, she said, my husband's worked out how we can get your wheelchair up a ramp up these stairs. And can you step into our house? I said, no, I can't step. I've not done steps yet. I can't do that. I went to the physiotherapist and I told her this story. And she, on Tuesday, she tried me on a stair. I was terrified out of my mind. The only way I know to deal with fear is to power through it. And I know that by forcing myself to do something like this, I'll get through it. It strikes me that you told the story at the beginning about how you were always scared of being one of those people who would say, oh, I haven't done anything with my life. Yes. And you've made a decision later in life to actually give yourself this huge challenge of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to do this again. It's actually a very good point, Megan, because... I have never thought of that before, but it is like there was a portion of like your life taken away from you, and I haven't accepted that. I'm just going to always, I guess, pursue that, that I'm going to make something out of my life. When you said that you were walking again outside of your wheelchair, like, are you still using supports? What, what does it look like? I definitely have to have a walker. I'm not fully able to stand without holding on to something because otherwise I probably would fall. Even with washing myself, I stand at the sink, I can stand up for a small length of time and then I have to hang on to a grab bar. So I still have not yet accomplished that I don't have to hang on to anything. And obviously that's one of my goals is that I will get to the place that I can stand without hanging on to something. Where are some of the places that you would like to to go to with your walker? Well, we rebooked our cruise for next year. There's a lodge not far from Calgary out in what is called the Kananaskis, and it is for disabled people. And I feel now that I can go there and stay more than just going for a day, but to go and stay overnight with some of my friends. 
one of the problems you have as a disabled person, or certainly I'm facing, is to travel anywhere. A lot of places don't have you know, a disabled place for you to go to and say if you're having to stay in hotels, which are so expensive, so you can't always do what you want to do because of costs. I actually would love to move back to BC, but again, the cost of BC is a little bit of a challenge when you've been away from it. So we'll see whether that can be materializing or not, or if I'm going to have to just stay in Calgary, which I guess isn't a bad city to be in. No, it's on my list of cities to come and visit. I want to ask you for some recommendations later. But for people who are maybe listening to this and they either have recently been diagnosed with MS, maybe they've been living with it for a while, or they know somebody who has been and they're adjusting to this new reality of MS, what type of encouragement would you want to give people? My first thing always is to tell them to get on a diet. And there's different MS diets. There's this one, MS Direct. There's another diet out there that's called the Walls Diet. It's a doctor down in Iowa, I believe. She, as a doctor, was diagnosed with MS and was able to get herself out of a wheelchair. In Australia, there is a group called Overcoming MS, and it's headed up by a Dr. George Jelinek, and Jelinek is spelled J-E-L-I-N-E-K. So that's my first thing, is the diet and to follow, like, just don't give up on it. The other thing is, I'm going to say, don't, how do I say this? Maybe the first way I'll say it is, one of the things that really affects you is temperature. And when I was still working, I was sitting there and I was thinking, I'm cold. I've got MS. Then somebody else, I heard them say in the office, I'm cold. And it made me right away realize that don't put everything on your MS. Maybe there's another reason for this. <laughs> right. Right. Like maybe the temperature is it, it's low. It, it's cold in here. And it, it's not because of your MS. And so, you know, that was a really big thing that there there's maybe many reasons for many different things other than just always thinking of your MS. And, and I just think that if you kind of put it in the back burner or put it in the back of your head or wherever you want to put it and you live your life and forget about it is far better than focusing all the time on MS. Right. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I know sometimes I kind of like picture my visual impairment as an employee and I am its boss and I get to tell it like this is the parameters of <laughs> like this is your role and this is what you are allowed to do. This is what you are not allowed to do. And at the end of the day, I call the shots, not you. Um, right. Like you're an, you're an important part of this team. Glad you're here. But... You don't call the shots on this business. I'm going to find the things that you add to my life that I'm grateful for and kind of enhance those, but you don't get to be the whole thing. And that's true. I've heard different people say that, you know, their MS has not always been a detriment to them, that in many ways it's enhanced their life. In many ways it's you know, made them maybe more aware of other people with disabilities and has brought more compassion in their life that otherwise they wouldn't have and they wouldn't even think about. And because they have more compassion for, I'll say, people with MS, they also have more compassion for other people with other disabilities. And like you say, it's not the controlling thing here. It's a part of your life and, you know, you can't deny that, but it's not going to be a control. What would you say are some of the, the main things that you would say living with MS has given you? I think one of the things is looking at life from a different perspective. 
I don't think I noticed people in wheelchairs before. And now, of course, I notice them a lot. I notice not only that they're sitting in a wheelchair, but they're a real person. And I know that I'm guilty of never seeing people in wheelchairs before. Mm. And I really feel like I miss a lot. So that's, that's one of the things I'm going to say, that it has helped me be more aware, be more compassionate, definitely. So moving on to the questions that we like to ask everyone on the show. First, even with this really supportive community that you have around you and the progress that, that you're making and like there's a cruise planned and everything, what are some of the places in your life where making good connections can be difficult because of your disability and the social structures around it? Making connections with other people can often be a real challenge. And one of the reasons is other people have to come your way. And what I mean by that is I can't easily do whatever. I have to think about it. I have to plan for it. I have to make adjustments, several little steps along the way. So nothing in your life is ever done spontaneous. So often people are not prepared to wait until you can make those changes. They're not going to wait on you for all the little steps that you are going to have to take. And so therefore, they just don't bother to invite you or to include you in. With that, what are some of the ways that you have been able to connect with people? What, like, what does good connection look like for you right now? For example, not very long ago, someone, you know, we were going for supper. They came here. They walked with me while I drove my walker over to the restaurant. Everything was done at the pace that I needed to go at. You know, we get into the restaurant. They're quite willing to open the door, let you into the restaurant, choose a table where it's easy for you to sit in your wheelchair at and all of these things. Mm, Yeah, that's great. And Heather, before I let you go. Calgary is on my list of cities that I would like to visit. I've only ever been to the airport and a burger restaurant. When I finally get to go out to Calgary, what is one place you think I should go? And what is one meal you think I need to eat? Oh my goodness, that's a a big question. Well, you know, Calgary is ranch country, so I'm going to say ribs. And anywhere I need to go? I'm going to tell you two places. I'm going to say you have to go to the zoo. And I'm going to say you also have to go to this heritage park that I'm talking about. And you have to phone me and invite me to come along. (laughs) Okay. Well, Heather, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for your um, perseverance. And I'm looking forward to hanging out in Calgary someday. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks to our guest, Heather Graham. And a personal thank you to everybody who has waited with me or made sure that I'm able to get to the places where I need to go. I hope you know who you are. Thanks so much for listening. We'll connect next time.